and welcome to this checkup podcast from Metcast. This podcast is part of a series that aims to provide the latest evidence and updates to guidelines that are practical and relevant to GPs. In this episode, we discuss diabetes-related emergency presentations in primary care. Our expert is Dr. Justin Coleman. Justin is a GP on Tiwi Islands, a senior lecturer at Flinders University in Darwin, a medical educator for NTGPE, an editor for Diabetes Management Journal, and a co-editor for Murtas General Practice and Murtas Practice Tips. To begin with, Justin explained whether people with type 1 or type 2 diabetes tend to have more prolonged and dangerous hypoglycemic episodes. The answer is actually type 2 diabetes. Um, the thing about it is, I, I guess it's that type 1 diabetes, you have a far higher natural tendency with, with absolute lack of insulin to, to go high in sugars. Uh, type 2 diabetes, you tend to be on a, a bunch of uh, medications, often longer acting, which keep you down low. And I think that's the underlying thing. But, but it is, uh, we should be aware that type 2 diabetes are actually more dangerous the hypos tend to be yeah, harder to manage in a way um, the other thing to note is that um, if you have or if you always have poor control and high high sugars then you um, come you can get hypos at hypo symptoms at far higher levels than average so we think of a hypo at a certain level but if someone's you know five and a half or or six uh, their BGL and they they're usually running at you know 14 to, to 20 the BGLs they will often get hypo symptoms Justin introduced a case, Frederico, a patient that has arrived at your practice confused, staring at his ringing phone in his hand and smiling at the nurse. He doesn't seem right and the nurse is worried he's had a stroke. A quick check on the computer reveals that Frederico has type 2 diabetes, hypertension and is on a couple of medications for each of those things. The nurse takes Frederico to the treatment room, collects some observations on him, all are within normal ranges except for his blood glucose level, which is a 2.1. Frederico is experiencing hypoglycemia. How is hypoglycemia defined? Justin explains. Yeah, happily there's a international hypoglycemia study group. I'd love to be on that one, um, which defines it. So the definition is actually less than four, which surprised me at the time I edited this article, I must say. I would have guessed uh, 3.5 or even three. But so level one is less than four. Now, Plenty of us occasionally will go less than four. And it is true to say that most symptoms tend to start at lower than that. So not many people get symptoms except if they generally run high, as I mentioned before, um, at above 3.5, but that's the definition. And the, they do um, say, and there's a number of guidelines that do say that um, for people with diabetes, so if you don't have diabetes, you don't need to monitor your blood sugar, even if you're operating machinery. But if you do have diabetes and you're on the hypoglycemic agents, uh, you should have caution under five. So under five, it's, it's a bit like having a tiny bit of alcohol. It does actually impair your decision making and your response times. And after you have had an actual hypoglycemic episode with symptoms, so something where you or someone else has had to do something about bringing you out of the hypoglycemic episode, don't drive under five. So there's don't drive over 0.05, which is the alcohol limit. Don't drive under five. So uh, if, you, if you've gone down to 2.1, so Frederico, you need to make sure he's well above five before he can drive home, for example. Level two is BGL less than three. Um, which they say is sufficiently low to indicate this serious um, clinically important problem. So if you're below three, level two. And level three is where Frederico got to. 
the, it's the same cutoff as level two, below three. Um, so 2.1, Frederica was. But in this sense, you got a cognitive impairment as well. So level two is where you have below three on as a number um, and things could happen and you're at risk, but you're not cognitively impaired. But level three, you need someone else to do something for you because you can't do it for yourself. Justin then discusses how common hyperepisodes are and whether patients with type 1 or type 2 diabetes are more likely to experience these. People with type 1 diabetes have three times the rate of hypos and they measure these in Australian studies and overseas. Um, it is, uh, for type, people with type 2 diabetes, um, early on you don't get many hypos as you've had it for you know, years and then decades, your rate of hypos does increase over time. So it's not a static thing. Um, and then roughly how often do people with type 1 diabetes experience hypos? Mild one to two times per week is not insignificant um, in terms of their life. And that's why uh, I suspect insulin pumps and automated systems are going to become more, uh, you know, quite attractive to uh, people with type 1 diabetes. But that's another topic. Why do symptoms occur? Justin explains. For people, you know, with hypos, so less than 3.6, less than 4, um, you get sympathetic overactivity. So what happens is your blood sugar drops, your body starts shooting out, um, you know, adrenaline, cortisol and stuff to try to um, counter it, and you get sweating, anxiety, hunger, palpitations, so that, uh, and, and nausea. So they're familiar signs and symptoms of hypos. But then the mechanism actually changes once you get uh, into dangerously low levels and that becomes neuroglycopenic so essentially your brain and nervous system isn't getting enough glucose so then you start to get these other things which are more the visual stuff the headaches the neurological deficits so the speaking so Frederico when he's lying there confused um, and odd, odd behavior so behavioral things brain things below 1.5 it's the same uh, underlying mechanism but you get seizure and coma so unconscious state seizure and coma and uh, eventually of course death justin then discusses why people with diabetes get hypos and what causes it there's medications, so iatrogenic causes. We put people on things to lower their uh, blood sugars. In particular, in insulin is certainly by far the most notorious. Of the oral agents and all the newer agents, sovereignurias are, are more likely than others to cause hypos. Uh, drinking alcohol, so doing lots of exercise more intensive than usual, and you can get delayed hypoglycemia up to 12 hours after intense exercise. Delayed or missed meals, and not eating enough carbs, and fasting. And in particular, um, very low calorie diets, that sort of thing, and also fasting for surgery. So that's something we have to remind our patients if they're going into hospital for anything, doesn't matter what, and they have experienced hypos in the past. I'll just touch on the sulfonylurea-induced hypos just uh, briefly. So it's more likely with renal impairment because sulfonylurea is just excreted renally, and it's more likely with the um, long-acting ones, so glabenclamide and glimepiride, less likely with the glycolazide and glipizide. So if you want your patient on a sulfonylurea and you're worried about hypos if they're older or whatever or they have a bit of renal impairment consider the shorter acting ones uh, down the bottom there 
There is also a drug, and this is something I'd never heard of till I uh, no doubt some of you clever GPs have, but I'd never heard of octreotide. I think it can also be useful for hypoglycemia. Justin then spoke about hypoglycemic episodes in patients that do not have diabetes. So very sick people, certain cancers, and sometimes they can affect um, hormonal uh, balances and satiety balances. Uh, again, alcohol, liver disease. So people with uh, cirrhosis are, are much more likely um, hypos, even if they don't actually have diabetes. Uh, various medications, including some of the more common ones. So they don't tend to do it on their own. Um, so you, it's not as if, you know, everyone on a beta blocker and, and taking uh, an NSAID gets it. But we have to be aware of possibility. There are various hormone deficiencies, Addison's in particular, uh, after bariatric surgery. So the, the uh, food intake is altered there. Uh, very rare is um, insulin secreting tumours, benign tumours and things like that. I actually saw one when I was an intern at Geelong Hospital um, and deliberate insulin overdose it still may be possible for patients like Frederico, who have had diabetes for a while, to experience hypoglycemia without noticing it. Uh, so hypoglycemia unawareness is also quite relevant for emergencies because if someone, if Frederico comes in and he's had this a few times, he can say to the nurse, look, I'm, I'm feeling wobbly, I'm feeling a bit hypo. And, you know, it's sort of, it becomes obvious to us all. But the unawareness is an issue. Uh, and the um, the longer you go on with diabetes, the more common it becomes. Um, and the other thing is, one of the reasons for that is there's sort of unfortunately this positive feedback loop. So if you have had more hypoglycemic episodes in the past, then they actually make you more likely to be unaware of them in the future. So in other words, your your body sort of adjusts in a way to to having reduced symptoms per uh, at any given level of blood sugar. So a, a history of hypos is very important for being unaware of your next hypo. The point, I think, the take-home point for us in what can we do about it, well, we one way is to say to patients, look, if your sugar's below four, <clears throat> eat a sandwich or do something about it. Don't, uh, don't just ignore it, even if you're feeling absolutely fine, if your sugar's 3.6. The point is there's not a lot of gap then between where they are and where they'll start getting symptoms. And the second one is um, for, you know, consider things like identity bracelets and training up family and friends in the use of glucagon um, because if they're getting down that low and are unaware of it, you need someone else to be aware of it. Next, Justin talked about hypoglycemia management. I put together these golden rules um, through a number of studies, and these, these are sort of the take-home messages, which you don't have to remember any facts or figures, but you should remember these things. Number one is, um, this sounds a bit obvious, but if you give something by mouth, carbohydrate, whether that's sugary or, or starchy, it should be swallowed. In other words, you... Um, you a very human body is very poor at absorbing sugar and honey through the inside of the cheeks or the buccal mucosa. And if someone is unconscious or drowsy, do not give them anything orally. And there's a temptation to, if there's nothing else available uh, and you're in the community or something and you haven't got your gear with you, but unfortunately um, you'll do more harm than good, risk doing more harm than good. Just remember when you're thinking hypos, think Dr. ABC. So doc, hypo doesn't overrule Dr. ABC. Now, hopefully if it's just a hypo, 
and you've looked around for danger and you figured out it's a hypo and they're unconscious, so that's a response. Hopefully you won't need to do anything much with the ABC, so it'll be a very quick survey and then you'll get onto the sugar. But, but if someone's choking to death, they're going to die of that long before they'll die of their hypo. If someone um, cannot safely swallow fast-acting carbohydrates, so that's Frederica in, in, in number two there, give glucagon and call the ambulance. So you will need backup. Even if they recover with the glucagon, you really do want them in the emergency department sitting around for a couple of hours just to make sure they're going to be okay. So get the ambulance out early. Um, if you have IV glucose, uh, so... When you read all the emergency department protocols and most diabetes emergency protocols are written by emergency physicians, that ba they barely mention the glucagon and they mention the glucose. But of course, for us, you know, it's all very well if you, you've got a great, if you're a bunch of 10 GPs and you've got a fantastic nurse and set up and you've got lots of stuff. But a lot of us might not be in that situation where we, it might take us a while to find the glucose, the, the drip and all that sort of thing. So uh, we use glucagon in that instance. But it does take 15 minutes to really kick in, which is one of the reasons IV glucose is more recommended. Uh, and it lasts about two hours. So again, if there's something like a lots of sulfonylurea on board or something, they might drop again after it wears off. You only have to remember two doses. Basically, give the whole lot for anyone over 25 kilos. So basically, adults or bigger kids, give the, jab the whole lot in. And for smaller kids, you give a half. You don't have to exactly measure it. You just look at the vial and give a half. It's, uh, it's pretty safe stuff, glucagon. Let's go back to our patient, Frederico, who has a blood glucose level of 2.1 and is sitting up on the bed. How should he be managed? So for mild hypos, give um, 15 grams of carbohydrate every 15 minutes. So this is if the person is conscious and cooperative. And in 15 minutes, you go back and check. And then you need to follow up with long-acting carbohydrates. So you go back and recheck that they're above 4 millimoles per litre. Dr Justin Coleman presenting the latest updates on the management of hyperglycemia in primary care. Metcast develops high-quality, independent courses that are relevant to GPs. We offer a number of courses in 2021, including Hot Topics GP Update webinars, Diabetes for General Practice, Women's Health for General Practice, and Emergencies in General Practice. To learn more about these courses and to discover more quality education, visit our website www.medcast.com.au.